You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Birthday podcast. Mike, Mike. Oh, yeah. Happy birthday, Jane. Thank you. Boop, happy boop. birthday. Should we um, sing? No. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jane Coaston, ProPublica's Dara Lind. Uh, we are going to talk today about some some dense methodology at the oh end. Gosh, um, but Matt a, gave us a whole econometric seminar. With a simple, who knows, uh, math is hard. Uh, but, but what's easy is mounting primary challenges to Donald Trump. Uh, I, I think- <laughs> Is it? <laughs> no. Well, it's easy to run. <laughs> it's hard to win. Um, I think I think it's safe to say that Trump will probably be the Republican nominee right. in 2020. That's an extremely hot take, Matt. Yeah, I've I've got it. Uh my my Nate Silverometer has it at a, a 99.6% chance. Uh but a couple a couple gentlemen are running against him it's in, true. for it's the Republican true. nomination. And there's and, kind of a like there's the tier of declared candidates, and then there's kind of this like second like demi monde of people who haven't said who it is expected depending on how things fall may run against him right, right? which i think makes this a fairly crowded field right first let's introduce of, of whom we are speaking yeah. we are speaking of former massachusetts governor bill welt yeah. who was previously seen as running as a libertarian party vice presidential candidate in 2016 to Gary Johnson, who told me that he was 50% Bernie Sanders and 50% Donald Trump, so everyone should like him, which was an argument. Yes. And it is an argument. Yes. It is legally an argument. And then there's former Republican legislator, Tea Party aficionado, and conspiracy theorist Joe Walsh, not of the Eagles. And they both seem to be working from a general working idea that what people want is a Republican, but a different kind of Republican. And so, for example, um, I interviewed Bill Weld a couple of weeks ago, and he said that his pitch to voters, including millennials, was that he was a normal Republican. Um, he was a, had a, was a big believer in shrinking the size of government. He really believed in tax cuts, but he was very concerned with the end of NAFTA and thought that the Iran deal should be put back in place. He was calling for the return of this halcyon era of Republican politics that was about free markets and free trade and this idea of being a Republican that Donald Trump is not. 
I, a, I think a big difference between Weld and Walsh in this is regard, it, yes. right? Yeah, which yeah. is that which is that Weld was a classic like New England moderate Republican who in the '90s was not like at war with national party leadership, but was out of step with it. I, th- I feel like when we now think of Republicans who are out of step with party leadership, we think of people who are very clearly outliers, right? Like before Justin Amash left the party, that kind of thing, or like the two Republican governors who exist on the East Coast now who are kind of seen as like they get lots of passes, but they're rare. Bill Walton comes out of a time when you're not when it's accepted that New England Republicans are going to be like, they're all like that, and there are still a lot of them. So it's just kind of a wing of the party, if not a particularly powerful one. Right, right. But I mean, it was just to say that, like, Bill Bill Weld has been a, at least somewhat dissident Republican through his entire career in in public life. He's publicly pro-choice. How he is placed within the 2019 version of the Republican Party, or even the 2016 version or the 2012 version of the Republican Party, is interesting. When Mitt Romney was running for president briefly in 2008, Bill Weld was chair of his uh, committee in New York. But then when Romney dropped out, um, Weld ultimately endorsed Obama. For lots of reasons, he is not, in fact, a normal Republican. There are people who are much closer to the Republican Party mainstream who are still mulling pr- primary challenges to Trump. The fact that Weld was literally running in a third party, like running under a third party banner in 2016, even though he was kind of loath to give up his Republican credentials even at that point, would be a reason for, you know, a primary voter perhaps to be skeptical of him in some of the same ways that like the knock on Bernie Sanders that he isn't a real Democrat. And at the same time that he's telling you he's a normal Republican, he's telling other reporters that he's running against partisanship and like the current state of partisan politics, which is a very odd position to be in when you're running in a primary that definitionally isn't something to like build bridges to people who are outside the Republican Party. Fundamentally, right, like Weld harkens back not to a pre-Trump version of the Republican Party, but really to a pre-George W. Bush version of a a Republican Party that had a bigger constituency of secular-ish or mainline Mm -hmm. Protestant people. Business people living in coastals and, and it still the, exists. The chamber of commerce wing. Yeah, yeah, so they say they are they are termed. Right. But I mean, it's not it's not that there aren't evangelical Christians in the chamber of commerce. They're just right. probably not in the chamber of commerce in Boston. Right. You know, and like that's Bill Weld's thing. And so it doesn't. It's interesting because it's this has been one of the most like robust political traditions in America. Like Massachusetts currently has a moderate Republican governor. It's not actually dying off, uh, but it has no. It's been a long time. It's been since back to the 1980 primary was the last time this style of politics had like a real purchase in the presidency. And there's so much about Trump that's like. Weird. It's not like Donald Trump is conservative on social issues, right? It's like he's also like, you know, owns this network of golf courses and and tweets weird stuff. And yeah. and, so, and so Joe Walsh is closer to what I think of as the median modern day Republican Party politician. So the the thing with Joe Walsh is um, he was a one term Illinois congressman who was elected as part of the Tea Party wave in 2010. But in the 1990s, he was like, when he was running uh, for congressional and statewide office, he was running as kind of 
a pro-choice person, and then he was a pro-life person with no exceptions, and then he became the most Trumpian of Trumpy voices, which apparently for him necessitated using incredibly racist and anti-Semitic invective and spending a great deal of time supporting a failed white nationalist attempted uh, Paul Ryan challenger, Paul Nalen, um, including having him on his radio show two days after Unite the Right in Charlottesville. But Walsh's entire thing now is like, you know... I helped create Donald Trump, and I regret this, and here's what I've learned. Now, again, Joe Walsh has pivoted enough times that I I am growing increasingly suspicious of his most recent pivot. And it was interesting because I think that when you go back, he seems to want you to believe that he says that it was the— meeting between uh, Trump and Putin in Helsinki that changed his mind. But I don't know when he stopped thinking that Stevie Wonder was ungrateful for taking a symbolic knee at a concert in 2017 or um, saying that I object to protests over something that doesn't exist, police killing black men in September 28th, 2016, which was not, you know, many moons ago. It was like a couple of moons ago. His entire thing, he told George Stephanopoulos that the beauty of what President Trump has drawn is that he's made me reflect on some of the things I've said in the past. I had strong policy disagreements with Barack Obama, and too often I've let those policy disagreements get get personal. Um, You know, that really depends on your definition of the term policy disagreement. But Joe Walsh's theory of change appears to be, I am a former Trumpist seeking some sort of reconciliation with the people I've wronged. It's as if he's like in the very early stages of an AA meeting. Right. So what you simultaneously have is, per Matt, Joe Walsh being a more representative Republican in terms of what the current Republican Party believes, and Joe Walsh running a less ideological campaign, a campaign that appears to be focused on the unfitness of Donald Trump as an individual for office, which is like, if you can make that case successfully, then sure, it's easy to understand why Republican voters might not have a problem, you know, pulling the lever for somebody who they don't think challenges their fundamental ideas about what it is to like be a human being. But if Joe Walsh is also saying, well, because I've now gotten critical distance from Donald Trump, I'm thinking that maybe all of this other stuff I said on, you know, the signature issues that Donald Trump rode to power, where the Republican Party is now thoroughly behind him, I'm now saying that those are bad, too. That's a much bigger distance. The struggle that I have thinking about both of these guys, or for that matter, the candidates who have kind of hinted at running, like Mark Sanford, former South Carolina yeah. congressman, who Trump deposed somewhat gleefully by stumping for his primary challenger last year, or, you know, for that matter, Justin Amash, who may be running for the Libertarian or Republican presidential nominations after having declared himself an independent. Like, in terms of any of their individual critiques of Trump, it's very hard to distinguish where they're saying that the party is fine, but Trump is bad, which the party doesn't agree with, the party thinks Trump is good, and where they're saying that the party needs to go in another direction, which is traditionally what you do in a primary, but also is a somewhat higher bar to clear to get people to vote for you in particular. And I think that all of this, um, Noah Rothman, who's a conservative writer at Commentary, he wrote a piece for NBC News's um, Think section, which is their kind of opinion and analysis section, where he made the point that though Trump is popular, a lot of the things Trump does are 
less popular with Republican voters. So there's kind of like if you if you ask people, what do you think about Donald Trump? The result will be different than what do you think about the trade war? What do you think about these specific aspects that if you take the words Donald Trump out of it, the argument is that Republicans are still concerned about debt. They're just less concerned about debt because Donald Trump is involved. Or they still support free trade. They just also support Trump. So the idea, I think, that Rothman raises is that the cognitive dissonance that typifies a party that supports Trump but still fears the consequences of a America's addiction to fiscal profligacy is hard to overlook, and this contradiction is a smart fissure for a Republican primary challenger to exploit. I think, though, that, that Matt, you, you are giving the world-famous dubious Matt Iglesias face, because <laughs> yeah. I think that yeah. there's a sense where the importance of the deficit or the importance of trade, I think that there is very much of a sense people who are supportive of Trump one, thinking like he's done enough on those things and all those things aren't his fault or he's fighting or whatever. But also, how much do people actually care about those things? Because when I spoke to with Weld, he was like, millennials are very concerned about the deficit. And I'm like, right. right. And, and when you go in to pull the lever for someone in a primary, you are not pulling the lever for I disagree with trade wars. You are right. pulling the lever for Donald Trump or a particular other individual. And so if the whole theory of the case here is if you like Donald Trump but don't like some of the things that he's doing, you should get Donald Trump out of office. Like, that syllogism doesn't work for me. Right. But what, here, let, let, let's let's take a break. And, and I want to look at this from, from the other side. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. To me, what's what's interesting about this, right, in, in terms of the, the paradigm Dara put forward is that, like, or, or, or Noah Rothman even, like, it's true that a lot of rank-and-file Republicans seem to be really into the Donald Trump persona, right? But the critique of Trump that I think would incredibly resonate inside official Republican Party politics is, like, just the opposite of that. 
right, that like broadly you would continue with Trump's policy approach and even concede that Trump has made some smart choices Mm -hmm. about recalibrating what the Republican Party's image is, but that Donald Trump personally is just not a good choice of leader, right, that like He has a 42 percent approval rating. He keeps stepping on news cycles with like weird controversies that aren't about anything. When he hits on an idea that Republicans generally think is smart, like let's try to make Ilhan Omar the face of the party, he doesn't do it in a super smart way. He's not really shrewd. He's not really uh, well organized, right? And we should just like put somebody else in to do the job. Right. The problem is like that idea has no resonance with normal people for whom the dispute about Trump is itself a kind of identity politics token. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Where, you know, if you are a sort of a professional Republican, the fact that Trump uh, seems to be down five to 10 points worth of approval rating from where a more appropriately conducted person would be really worries you uh, because you want to win elections and hold power. But to a lot of rank and file people who feel that American pop culture has sort of neglected uh, like working class white people and traditionalist values, like the fact that Trump is such a lightning rod is it's not exactly that it's like good, but like taking Trump's side of the argument about Trump is, I think, clearly seen to people as a way of standing up for themselves. Right. Right. And it, I, it is itself a a identity marker of a sense. So if Trump is tweeting mean things about Deborah Messing, you have to parse that out as this is Trump speaking out against coastal elites. Of which Trump is one. But like, I, there's a very much of a sense in which your objections or liking for Trump have very little. I think for, uh, you know, for a lot of people, they have little to do with what Trump does, but just more so about who Trump is. And I think that there's well, a sense and, that. You know, and what as, Trump stands for. Yeah, right? the like, concept of Trump. And I, and I think there's there's also like a very relevant divide here, which is that. People who are professionally involved in politics are, by definition, high information voters. A lot of people do not know what Donald Trump is tweeting on a daily basis. Like Fox News, while it covers some of Trump's self-generated news cycles, tends to not cover his random fights with like, you know, they'll cover fights with Ilhan Omar because Ilhan Omar is a you know, significant, like, cultural figure in other regards and a lightning rod for other culture war issues, they won't cover random celebrity fights with Deborah Messing. So a lot of the ability that Trump has to step on his own news cycles matters a whole lot if you're already a high-information voter and you're looking at this collected body of information and going, okay, A, we have a lot of evidence that someone other than Donald Trump could be doing a better job of highlighting Republican policy and like accomplishments and proposals. And B, we have a collected body of evidence that Donald Trump is not a reliable person to have in the commander in chief seat, that he's like a poor decision maker. What I think is really underappreciated is that if you under if you appreciate Donald Trump because of what he stands for, 
you probably have already kind of priced in, yeah, he's going to tweet some things that I don't particularly think are important, but you've already written that off. You're not following the day-to-day of here is what Donald Trump is doing today, and you're not exhausted by it in the same way that a lot of people who follow politics on a day-to-day are. But I think it's almost like more pathological than that, because it's not liking Donald Trump because of what he stands for. It's liking Donald Trump because of what his presence in office symbolizes, right? Which is not like Trump's victory over Hillary Clinton, but your victory over, you know, some sense of the the elites, right? And I I, I don't know. I, I think I've, I've been canceled for offering this analogy in, in the past, but Trump reminds me a lot of a figure like Marion Barry or Sharp yes. James. People, yeah. people, I, I, an archetype that we're familiar with from African-American politics, which is the big city mayor who it becomes clear is in fact not that effective and is somewhat corrupt or ethically challenged, but who is seen as the authentic champion of the city's majority and whose enemies are seen as culturally alien. And the criticism of the leader is seen as hypocritical because the, you know, in this case, like white elites don't hold themselves to this same standard uh, that they are trying to put your champion to, that he's kind of getting over on the system in a way that so shows that he's shrewd. Right. He's and like, then he's fundamentally, like a, the fact that he is in high elected office does not change the fact that his constituents are fundamentally the victims and that therefore criticism of him is punching down. Right. Which like... I think is very, like, very obviously has different empirical levels of truth when we're talking about Marion Barry in D.C. and when we're talking about Donald Trump in the United States. But, like, that's the theory of the case. And it's challenging to it's it's then gets easy on those situations like to on paper be like well why don't we just get like a different politician who's from the same community who has the same policy stances but who like isn't involved in illicit drug stuff and like that will be better but nobody it's like nobody wants to hear it right it's like when you are at war at a like community to community level in politics and like this person as your champion is like the symbolic uh, uh, icon of like what is the city about? Who is the city for? Who is the true community? Then these details are not important, and the proposal to like swap out the leader for a fresh face, it, like it, it doesn't gain any traction with anyone. It's it, so it's like easy for me to sit here and be like, look, if you just like had Mike Pence be president. Um, he would probably do way better in 2020, and that would advance Republican aims. But, you know, nobody who's into Trump is going to see it that way. Which I think is it's interesting also, because I think there's also a moment in which occasionally when um, the, the worst Twitter fights that happen generally are um, between liberals and folks on the left on the subject of Barack Obama. And some of this some sort of shows up in which people will point out, like, drone strikes on weddings and like and things that Obama did that were not good. But there's this idea of like, no, 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 that what Obama did matters way less than who Obama was or who Obama was viewed as being. It's interesting how that separation takes place. And I see this a lot with not like dedicated Trump supporters, because there are a lot of people who are Trump supporters who are la- not Republican Party supporters. But for the people who have managed to square that circle, there's very much of a sense of like, well, we're getting some of what he wants, and he seems to make the people we don't like mad. 
ergo, we're just going to deal with this. What what I will be interested in, um, and I, you know, I've talked about this last week on the Ezra Klein show, is how the post-Trump GOP will deal with this time. There's either going to be the Josh Hawley for President 2024 movement, or there's going to be the why don't we just find another, like George P. Bush, is he available? What's he up to? So yes, this is the thing, because in general, the line on primary challenges to incumbent presidents is they don't succeed, but the same things that make someone likely to primary an incumbent right. president also make it likely that the that the incumbent president is not as likely to win. Right. Um, which is like, not. it's not the same as saying, oh, you've disrupted party unity and therefore yeah. you've made our guy lose. It's just that like, if you see, if you smell blood in the water, it's, it's you smell blood in the water. And it's interesting also, just to quickly, before yeah, yeah. you go back, that generally the effort to primary someone from your own party tends to be more effective if you are further towards the ideological well, whatever and of whatever that party common, is. Right? right. So, for instance, Ronald Reagan attempted uh, tried to primary Gerald Ford in 76. Uh, Pat Buchanan launched a primary campaign against George H.W. Bush in 1992. Which, um, like, for the record, is an instructive comparison here, not because, yeah. like, not because Buchanan is similar to Bill Weld in yeah. this analogy, quite to the contrary, but because Bill Weld's political theory is that he's going to overperform in New Hampshire, which, right. yes, if you overperform as a primary challenger in New Hampshire, that does tend to lend a certain amount of, if not credibility to your candidacy, right. attention to the weakness of the incumbent. But... The model for overperforming in New Hampshire is Pat Buchanan primarying George H.W. Bush, which is to say a populist primarying right, a exactly. moderate New England Republican. Right. So I'm not totally sure how Bill Weld thinks that math plays out in his favor. It it, it seemed unclear. But, he seemed to be very much on the argument that I have not in the in New England. I do not meet many Trump supporters, Erico. But, you know, the, the Buchanan thing, the uh, certainly in 1968, which is like the paradigmatic example, because Lyndon Johnson did ultimately not seek re-election. Yes. So the primary insurgent challengers to his candidacy really did have an aim in wresting the Democratic Party away from, you know, commitment to Vietnam. So I can understand the logic of a primary challenger of I'm not going to win, but in case the incumbent loses, and I think he might lose, I now have a platform to say, here's what I think the party ought to be. And when I think of that, I think of Ted Cruz at the 2016 Republican National Convention, oh, right? Which your is conscience. This amazingly forgotten moment because Ted Cruz then, you know, became a very enthusiastic Trump supporter in time for Election Day. But as late as the convention, Ted Cruz did not endorse Donald Trump and instead gave this like very, he you know. He just kept saying, vote your conscience while right. people screamed at him. And he looked bafflingly happy. And yeah, right. I, I think that might be the last true but joy so, he's but experienced But so much in a while. of this, right, I think so much of what happens after Trump is going to hinge on, like, what are the circumstances under which Trump leaves yes. office, right? Yes. I would say a really dumb way to forecast the future is to just, like, assume that the conditions that prevail today will will prevail in the future. But if it happened, right, like, if there's no change in the environment between now and November 2020, it seems like Trump would lose the election and would lose it relatively narrowly, but would lose it under weird circumstances to lose a re-election fight where, like, the economy is pretty good, the unemployment rate's low, there's no huge foreign policy disasters. And that would really argue in favor of a uh, de minimis post-Trump 
reform, right? Which is to say, like, take a lot of the ideas that we've been working with, but just try to, like, have our shit together better. And, like, then we we could have won and maybe ease up on the, on the trade stuff because that's just controversial among Republicans, right? The other scenario is one in which Trump, whether it's because something bad happens next year or because something bad happens in a Trump second term, but is where you have circumstances similar to where Bush left the stage, right, which is like with the country in a state of crisis and doing really poorly in the election and people are like, oh, we need like a whole new direction. Or then there's the Reagan model where you're actually able to hand off to a successor while you are still popular and and powerful. And it's just like the the future is uncertain and we don't really know. It's interesting to me because, Jane, like you mentioned Josh Howley in, yeah. in this regard. And, you know, he's an interesting guy because he seems to have really joined what is the most divisive, like, intellectual topic among present-day conservatives, which is like, should we trust to the free market or do yes, we need yes. like the steering hand of the state to reshape the economy? Right. That the free well, to, why to, is the to free protect not- society and in so doing reshape. Right. 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 Exactly. And, and like Halley's position in this is to like those of us who like read obscure things is like the quote unquote Trumpian position. But Donald Trump doesn't like actually espouse that view in a particularly not. clear way. So it's there, like there's an idea of Trumpism that is markedly unconnected to who Trump or what Trump is. Right. Generally, like you take the charismatic political figure and you build an intellectual superstructure around right. him. Indeed. Depending on the circumstances, like Holly and people who agree with him, if you're clever, you could either spin that as like the party needs to adopt our ideas to consolidate the successes of Trumpism, or the party needs to adopt our ideas to make up for the failures of Trumpism. Because it's like both something that is associated with Trump, but like not really reflected in Trump's policymaking. Normal people's engagement with the political system is on a level of like what's controversial about Trump is trade wars, personal misconduct, and like like saying weird stuff, not this like in the weeds things about the, you know, tech companies, I think. Yeah, no, I think you're right that that's that like post facto they have that option. But I think right now it seems to me that most Republicans are looking at Trump and and correctly intuit that Donald Trump as an individual politician is more popular than the disaggregated things to which they can break Donald Trump into. Right. And like, That does mean that, you know, for obvious reasons, primary challenges are doomed. But like the other way that you can demonstrate that this is the case is by looking at congressional Republicans, right? Like in theory, super galaxy brain take. If you are concerned about the direction of your party post Donald Trump or for that matter, if you are concerned that Donald Trump is going to lose you the election, the way that you have the most control over a post-Trump GOP would be to push for impeachment, remove him from office, get Mike Pence in there. Like I'm, they're, they're not doing it, but they're not doing it for the very obvious reason of they know Donald Trump is popular among the Republican base right. and therefore push him out is going to lead to all of them getting pushed out in primaries. Like, by a similar token, if you're worried about the conduct of Donald Trump in office, even without primarying him, you could pass laws that restrict executive power. They're not doing that. Why aren't they doing that? Because they don't want to pick fights with Donald Trump. Why don't they want to pick fights with Donald Trump? Because they know he's more popular than they are among the Republican base. Or at least they suspect that, and they're too conservative, small case C conservative, to test that notion. There's also a sensibility that I think is in some way correct, that the basic theory of this is that what Trump has been able to do 
is he did not widen the field of potential votes. He deepened it. So he has a very specific base, and it is a very deep and committed base. It is not a wide one. Hmm. And so, for example, you know, there's been recent polling on how he's starting to lose not just they're kind of like college educated white men and white women, but also non college educated women. And you start seeing a lot of concerns from people in kind of professional conservatism about suburban white women who, if Trump just never said anything at all, I think that there's an idea of Trump in which if Trump decides that he is going to do America's greatest Calvin Coolidge impression and just stops talking and doesn't say anything awkward, and somehow we manage to forget about paying off porn actresses and all that kind of thing, there's an idea— I had of, forgotten about paying off porn actresses oh, for I, this entire episode. I, I I can never forget. I regret. It's um, family values. But I think that there's an idea that, like, that is— you know, there are a lot of people who are just kind of like, if Trump would just shut up, we could keep suburban white women on board. But I think that for the primary challengers, their idea is— if we can kind of break up this support in some way or show the fissures or show that the support, because I think that there's an idea among a lot of people, and I think you see this in the media, that the how Trump won in 2016 was like super crazy magic that he can use at any time. So all of his very bad ideas are actually super genius ideas because he won in 2016 and thus, that must be how he did so. But I think that the idea is that if you can show the fissures, if you can show that the depth of support does not correspond to wide support, that, you know, when Trump came in and the, with the 2018 midterms and when, you know, down ballot candidates were like, let's make this about policy issues. And Trump was like, boop, 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 Leroy Jenkins, I'm going to make this about terrifying immigrants coming to kill you. It didn't work. And so I think that there is an idea here. I don't know how effective it will be. It probably won't be. For a lot of, you know, a lot of states are starting to close their GOP primaries to protect Trump, which has happened before. But there's an idea that if you can show the fissures, if you can show that, like, the base is not that big, they're loud, they're kind of mean sometimes, but it's not that big. I think that is part of the thesis behind these efforts to primary Trump. But then, you know, so much of this, because you're talking about, you know, what what can you show, right? right. And, and a lot of this... I think comes down to to media dynamics in a weird way, right? That like, you know, you could posit some like much stronger potential Trump challenger, right? And say like, so what if like Greg Abbott ran against Trump in the primary, right? On a platform of like, look, like we got to have strong borders, but like not say racist stuff that makes lifelong Republicans in the suburbs of Dallas want to vote for better or work. Um, in a world where he could go on Sean Hannity's television show and have a respectful conversation with Sean Hannity about whether Greg Abbott or Donald Trump better reflects the best ideas of conservative politics and the best hope for the Republican Party going forward, it's like that's not going to happen, right? Like there isn't going to be an open venue for having this discussion. The, the time to convince the sort of conservative base that Trump is not a good champion for their cause was a long time ago during the 2016 primary before he got 
sort of officially branded as the front runner. And they mostly didn't do that then, right? I mean, I, I, I recall like looking at the 2020 Democratic primary, how much of 2016, which eventually became about flailing criticisms of Trump, but was dominated early on by all the prominent candidates assuming Trump would fade. That yeah. was a time in which it would have been easy Right. For Ted Cruz, Jeb yeah. Bush, Marco Rubio in July 2015, September 2015, to get a very respectful hearing in conservative spaces for like their argument about why I would be better than Donald Trump. But they mostly weren't doing it back then. And now the 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 conservative uh, broadcast world has decided that, like, it's really into Trump. So they are going to steer this conversation in particular directions. I mean, I think the other thing that is kind of being hinted at there is there's never just one challenger to Trump, right? Even when Donald Trump not only was getting a plurality but not a majority of Republican voters in early primaries, but, like, was inspiring very passionate opposition and not just within the, like, D.C. cocktail party elites, but it among longtime Republic, like longtime grassroots Republican activists who were skeptical of his recent conversions on social issues. Like right. even at that time, it wasn't possible for anybody to coalesce around a single challenger to Trump, probably in large part because Ted Cruz, who was the strongest ideologically positioned to do so, was like personally disliked by so many Republican figures that it right. was impossible to coalesce around him. But by that same token, like you don't just have one super Trump challenger right now. You already have two declared challengers. You know, Sanford could get in. Uh, there's, you know, like Amash isn't saying no, which means people are going to continue to pressure him to get in. There continues to be noise that like the most effective people to challenge Donald Trump would be Charlie Baker or Larry Hogan, the yeah. Republican governors that we mentioned. Like the idea that the ideal anti-Trump candidate is out there is always going to stop or at least, OK, I won't predict the future, but has for like literally, you know, four years at this point stopped anti-Trump Republicans from coalescing around a single actually existing challenger to Donald Trump. And so it makes it much harder to imagine that you're going to have a challenge to Trump's dominance in the Republican Party because it's not Trump versus X challenger. It's Trump versus a field of nobodies. Yes. It's interesting because I think there's an idea that some folks in conservative media have that because Trump does a thing and that thing polls well with Republican voters, the thing itself is popular, whereas I don't think that's entirely true. And I think one of the challenges that's going to be had is that Trump's version of republicanism is far more popular than other people's version of republicanism. I mean, there's a reason why, I mean, there are many reasons, but there's a reason why Ted Cruz is not president. Yeah. There's a reason why the entire idea of like, let's break up big tech is no longer just an idea that Elizabeth Warren is having. And there's an idea, like, I think one of the things that Trump has done very effectively is subvert the idea that professional conservatives and people who vote thinking they're conservatives were all on the same page. Wait, they were definitively well, not. I mean, in concrete terms, I mean, this is why I thought this idea that Republican voters are concerned about fiscal profligacy is, is wrong, right? Like, this was, like, the big thing in terms of issue substance with Trump. It, the, it doesn't get a lot of attention now because it's not as spectacular as immigration stuff and other things. But like he just abandoned the conservative position on Social Security and Medicare, 
right? Completely abandoned it in favor of a different— And loudly abandoned right. it. It wasn't like a thing he just doesn't talk about. Right. Like a lot of the tariff stuff, I think, wasn't as prominent during the Republican primary. But, you know, anyone who was following his rhetoric closely could tell. He was like on the debate stage defending himself against other Republican candidates. And it was saying, and it, no, 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 this is important. And, and it was a move to the middle, right? right? It was the equivalent of if a Democratic candidate got up there and was like, we've got to cool it with this— extreme pro-choice stuff. You know what I mean? Like, And there was a backlash from the conservative movement against it. Right. But it turned out that like, not only was Trump's position on Social Security and Medicare more popular with the general electorate, it was also more popular with rank-and-file Republicans. Right. right. And now if you go, if you find the conservative wonks, they'll tell you, look, we didn't like come up with the idea that you need to cut these programs just because we were bored one afternoon. <laughs> They're going to like show you all these graphs about spending trends yeah. and debt. But right now, interest rates on federal debt, like today, they just like cratered again from what were already historic lows. So there's no objective pressure on this. I, I don't know how long that will hold up, right? But the the idea that there's going to be just like a mass uprising where people start demanding cuts to popular programs for no reason, yeah. like that's, that's not going to happen. Nope. But there really could be, I, I, I don't, I mean, I don't want to get too deep into like weird macroeconomic forecasting, but like the situation can change to create circumstances in which like there really is pressure to cut these programs. And then, you know, like who knows, right? Like Trump is not um, doing a lot of like briefings that really spell out his thinking on long-term fiscal policy in a clear way. He has just brushed aside, uh, like people on the left think that you need to have taxes to pay for these programs and people on the right think you need to get rid of the programs to pay for the tax cuts. And Trump is just like la-di-da. <laughs> but for the time being, that's totally fine. Right. So yeah, the idea that the Republican Party can make anti-entitlement advocacy, a central part of its platform is based on, you know, to be super, to like be super simplistic about it, the Thomas Frank model of the Republican Party, right. right? Which is that you can get voters to mobilize for you on social issues because they care more about social issues and you can throw them some bones while doing, while engaging in economic policy that not only may be unpopular generally, but may be unpopular even among your base. But what the Donald Trump insurgency has shown is that the populist base doesn't need to do that. They can nope. get everything they want. They don't need to settle for half the loaf. And so the argument and and that furthermore, that those economic issues are a cultural matter to them because right. they're questions of who has power in America and whose voices are elevated and who gets to represent like who is the face of America and of American power to the rest of the world. And I don't know how you get that genie back in the bottle. Indeed. Should we do a white paper? Let's Take a do break. a white paper. Let's do it. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we have for you today Audits as Evidence, Experiments, Ensembles, and Enforcement by Patrick Klein and Christopher Walters. These are both UC Berkeley professors. Uh 
I am going to straight up admit, this paper had like an off-the-charts level of math I didn't understand. Right. And it wasn't like, generally, we can kind of uh, ignore the math because it is segregated in a particular part of the paper. This The math here is crucial to the argument that the paper is actually making, which is that you can use econometrics to predict with reasonable accuracy using the kind of famous resume studies, which are, you know, you send resumes to employers with like names that are that sound prototypically white or prototypically black, et cetera. And the callback rates that you get are suggestive evidence of disparate treatment that you could actually use that to predict with reasonable accuracy which firms are deliberately engaging in discriminatory behavior. Yeah, so I I just want to be straight out and say that what what I think is most interesting to discuss here is not actually what's the central point of this paper, which is a a lot of math that's beyond me. But so, okay, set up. They're saying there's a kind of experiment that people do where they send resumes uh, out to different employers and you can manipulate the resumes to be identical except that you give what they call racially distinctive names. So you put like some very black uh, names on a couple resumes and very white names on some others. You send them out. Um, So an interesting thing that they find looking back, these experiments have mostly been conducted to try to understand the amount of discrimination that happens like either in society in general or in an industry or something like that. And it comes back, you know, they always show like there's a modest amount of discrimination against black resumes. Um, So the new fact that they developed that I think is interesting is that this is not because most companies are a a little little bit discriminatory. It's because a relatively small number of companies are super discriminatory. So then The whole paper is like a bunch of math that's about the consequences of this. Like, how can we develop statistical techniques to let us use these to catch discriminators? Uh, Because for for Bayes' law type reasons, um, when, when you are trying to detect When you're trying to use statistical methods to detect activity that is rare, you need to be careful about getting too many false positives. So mathy, math, 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 math. Um, I just think it was interesting that the discrimination is so concentrated. Right. And then furthermore, like this is all they're using data from previous audit from resume audit studies. Right. Like they're not doing their own experiments. And so just by going back and looking at some of the you know, most like mathematically reliable studies in the field that existed, they showed, hey, by the way, if you went back and looked at your data, you would find that this is actually concentrated in a, in, you know, a long tail of super heavy discriminators. I think that there's something, I mean, frankly, I don't think that it's as, as little as I understood the uh, econometric argument that they're making. And, you know, while I think that any endorsement of their argument kind of implies a level of mathematical confidence that I mathematically cannot have. Um, there is something to be said for kind of seeing this as seeing the concentrated employer discrimination and the so you could use math to work this out as interrelated phenomena, right? Because like if you're trying to look for behavior that a few firms are doing really heavily, you can't just and we're just not at a point as a society yet where you can say like, well, the numbers demonstrate that you hired more white people than black people relative to their proportions right. in the population. Therefore, we're going to haul you in for an EEOC complaint. But the EEOC is kind of inundated with existing complaints that are, you know, 
qualitative in nature that are an individual experience or, you know, the experiences of several people who are saying, hey, there's something going on here. And if you thought about this as a way to triage, it's kind of like a second tool to have so that you could, you know, figure out which of the EEOC complaints are most likely to result in in results if you were to engage in a serious investigation. The end of this paper goes as far as to say that you could reliably predict whether someone is discriminating by doing a resume experiment on them using 10 resumes. That like that's you don't need to you know, you don't need to experimentally test the entire size of the company. You can get a very good predictor of is this just a random circumstance that the white res- that the resumes with white names are getting called back just with that smaller number. So you can understand it as kind of an added method. But again, that requires having somebody who actually knows the math go through and say, yeah, this is a method that is unlikely to result in calling people discriminators who for whom like there are just other things going right. on. They're just calling back the first resume that they happen to like or getting too many like, nah, everything's fine. We can explain this other ways. Right. And especially because the paper notes that it basically made race into a binary choice of white or black. Right. And you know, as it notes that There's a lot of heterogeneity in how discrimination is experienced in differing workplaces. And I'm just a little concerned with how this particular... I mean, I think it works from a mathematical standpoint, but I also think that the experience of discrimination, I think, you know, that's one of the biggest challenges about our understanding of discrimination in a post-Jim Crow, post-kind of human resources development concept idea of the workplace is that it is not an generally an objective standpoint. It is generally not like, ah, yes, I was in fact discriminating against this person. It was, you know, they could argue, you know, well, these were just the first resumes we got, or there are these specific things that we were looking for. And there's an argument. I think that that is something that I, I would be interested to see further research on, but I'm just a little bit kind of like, I think attempting you know, I, I recognize the place of math in our daily lives, whether I like it or not. But I, I am just a little bit kind of like nonplussed, I believe is the term. I, I think that the the resume studies have been the best way to right. kind of break through this logjam, right? Because generally there tends to be a problem of, you know, people who are prone to get defensive about racism reduce it to the level of individuals with ill intent engaging in deliberate acts to other individuals and are hesitant to ascribe, you know, are hesitant to label broader structural disparities racism because they can't identify individual intent. And when you can talk about like, hey, okay, literally the only thing we changed on this resume were the names and this particular outcome happened differently. You can understand that as the result of a series of individual decisions and therefore can assume that like racist intent or otherwise there was a racism being done and can then say, you know what, I accept that broadly there is a problem here. This is going to get trickier when you then try to reduce it back to at to the firm level, right? Which I think might be why some of these earlier studies were thinking about things at the market level. Because at the firm level, you can start arguing, well, this firm offers yeah. this particular rationale. Well, right. so I, I think two two things that are that are important here beyond the the math, right? One is I have come to think that in the high-minded intellectual dialogue about race in America, that like baseline discriminatory behavior has become underrated, that we 
many of us in the Takeverse have spilled like millions of pixels about the like deep historical and institutional legacies of slavery and this or that. But like a major problem is if you face just like present day in the moment employment discrimination. That drives a lot of gaps in income and wealth and other outcomes, right? That's quite quite bad, quite a serious problem that is not as like interesting as like big thing, right. airy thoughts, but like is a is a big deal. The other is that when you have um, discrimination which is concentrated then certain kinds of things can help solve it that don't directly tackle the problem, right? This you, – you can see this as, as aligned with a lot of the minimum wage literature, other things that show that the uh, employment market is not fully competitive. And that's a reason why discriminators are able to get away with continuing to discriminate without handicapping their businesses terribly, right? Or you think about general labor market dynamics, right? When you are at closer to a full employment economy, it is very, very costly to a company to not just hire the best people. Uh, but we haven't had that for most of the past 20 years, right? So uh, sort of a lack of antitrust enforcement, a lack of sound uh, monetary policy, these all create the dynamics in which these kind of sharply discriminatory patterns can continue to exist. Uh, a lot of uh, economists convinced themselves back thanks to Gary Becker back in the 60s that there sort of couldn't be intense discrimination happening because market competition would cause discriminatory firms to fail. This is basically the argument I get occasionally from right-leaning libertarians about the Civil Rights Act. Exactly. That essentially that like the market would have forced companies that refuse to serve black Americans or interracial couples to integrate by virtue, but which I think is not true. Well, well, but this is why it's why like statistical findings that there are seriously discriminatory firms out there. They play with that model in an interesting way because yeah. it's telling us that the market is not that competitive. Because like the libertarians are correct that if you assume a like frictionless idealized market that would happen, right? That consistently failing to make objective hiring choices would cause you to go out of business. Uh, but it doesn't, right? And that relates to a whole bunch of other economic policy things where there's, you know, like real remedies, right? And remedies that speak to uh, a lot of co different kinds of problems that that arise when you don't have competition for jobs and you don't have good employment prospects for people more generally. Uh, so like all in all, I think this idea that like a large minority of people are just very racist and are discriminating in their hiring choices, it's like it sounds kind of banal compared to like cutting edge race theory, uh, but it appears to be true and I think is like a big deal. I agree. But if you don't agree, you could yell about it in the uh, Facebook Weeds group. Yell at us, uh, recommend our podcast to friends and family without distinction or discrimination. I, I was going to say friends, family, and EEOC auditors. Yeah, we're sure. going to audit you all uh, somehow. Actual, you know, economic, uh, econometrics experts who can <laughs> vet the math for us. Please don't. Years. Save us. Um, <laughs> This is bad. Um, okay, and with that, uh, th thanks to all you guys. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld, uh, and the Wees will return on Friday.
Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.